You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, in 1950, a book was published that, apart from Scripture, played one of the most prominent roles in changing my life. Uh, I was not alive in 1950 uh, to have the first copy, uh, but it has been formative, and the book is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. Uh, this book is a part of a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, and perhaps the most famous passage in the entire chronicle is found in that first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The, the book centers on, on four children. Uh, Lucy and Susan, Peter and Edmund, and another character that they come to meet named Aslan. Early in the first book, the four children are told about this one, Aslan, by a Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. The conversation goes like this. Mr. Beaver says to the children, Aslan, he's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But he's not often here, you understand. In fact, never in my time or my father's time have we seen him. Lucy, the youngest of the children, asks if Aslan is a man. And Mr. Beaver responds, Aslan, a man? Certainly not, he said sternly. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan chimes in, confessing with doubt and fear that she should be quite nervous and afraid to stand before a lion. So she asks of Mr. Beaver, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver finally declares, safe. Didn't you hear what we said to you? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. This interaction with the children and the beavers. The children can readily accept that there is a king named Aslan. But for them, there are two questions that still remain. One, what type of king is this? And what do they do in response to this king? Last week, Robert led us through the passage of Jesus calming the storm and the reaction of the disciples. We watched as this man, Jesus, who had been known for his powerful teaching and his miraculous works, declared that he was not just a great teacher, he wasn't even just a human savior, but that he was the king, the Lord of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. And today, in our passage, like the Pevensey children, we, along with the disciples and quite honestly, every other human being that is born, 
now that we know that Jesus is king, must answer the final two questions. What kind of king is he? And how do I respond to this king? Mark tells this story before us that answers this question in three acts. This is the the roadmap that we'll be walking through. The first act of the story introduces us to an enemy who must be defeated. The second act of the story shows us the battle between the true king and the would-be king. And finally, we are shown the response of the people to Jesus. The introduction of the enemy who must be defeated, the battle between the true king and the would-be king, and finally the response of the people to Jesus. Mark begins the story in verse 1, and he says this, They, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. After the great storm that they had been caught in, after Jesus had, like a parent to an argumentative child, had told the winds and the waves to hush, they find themselves on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in a region called the region of the Gerasenes. And Mark tells us immediately, he, Jesus, is met by a man with an unclean spirit. The word spirit here, which sometimes is translated as breath or wind, pneuma in the Greek, is the same word spirit that we use for the Holy Spirit in the Greek. But Mark tells us this man is not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but an unclean, impure spirit. Now, let me pause before we go into this, because... I think in order for us to engage this passage fully, we've got to address something, and that is how we engage with things like demonic activity. I've preached this passage a couple times previously in ministry, and I used to say that we tend to fall on one of two spectrums, or one and two ends of the spectrum. The one is that Demons are nothing and they don't really exist. And the other end of the spectrum is that demons are everything and everywhere behind every bush. Every time you're late to work, it's because some demon was in traffic. But the truth of the matter is, I think in our context, and I could be reading the room wrong, and if I am, that's okay. But I think in our context, in kind of postmodern, upper middle class, down-home Texas Georgetown, I think we probably, most of us, tend to fall on the demons. I don't know what to do with them, so I don't really think about them. End of the spectrum. Right? It's a topic we kind of feel uncomfortable about. When we read it in Scripture, we just kind of put it aside as something that happened 2,000 years ago, but something that really doesn't happen today. Something that we don't really encounter and we don't know what to do with today. But honestly, our failure to get our minds and our hearts and our imagination around the truth of demonic activity is probably symptomatic of a larger issue we face, which is that we don't know what to do with spiritual realities at all. We struggle to understand 
angels and demons. We struggle to understand the way that God has conversations with other angelic beings in heaven in Scripture. We struggle to understand where Jesus is right now in human form. We struggle to understand or what to do with the entire book of Revelation. Here's what we need to understand. One, reality is not limited to what we can see or hear, smell, taste, or touch. We know that before this created world that we exist in was created, God was. And he still exists in heaven Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says, and he does whatever he pleases. We have to see and understand the story that we are a part of is bigger than simply what's around us. I heard a good example of this recently as I was listening to another pastor preach through the book of Revelation. He said, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 2, which is one of the traditional Christmas passages, if you've ever gathered your family on Christmas morning and read through the birth of Jesus, it's likely that Matthew chapter 2 was one of those passages. Or if you've been to a Christmas Eve service, you probably read through the story of, of Mary giving birth in a manger, shepherds showing up, wise men eventually coming to celebrate the birth of Jesus But did you know that Revelation 12 also tells the story of Christmas? But this story has a woman in heaven crowned and a great dragon who intends to take the child and destroy the child when he is born because the dragon knows that this child will one day defeat him in a great battle. They're the same stories, but one is happening here on earth while the other happens in heaven. We are a part of something different, something bigger than what we see. One day, heaven and earth will be made one when the Lord Jesus returns. But right now, there is what is in front of us, and there is also the heavenly realm. The second truth, besides just knowing that it exists, is knowing that we have a real enemy. Satan, who is opposed to the perfect rule and reign of our God. And he hates us because we are made in our God's image for the purpose of bringing him glory. This opposition, this hatred, this intent on destruction is what our enemy is doing to this man that we are told about in Mark chapter 5. Listen, when I was in elementary school, I think I was in fourth grade, uh, I, I, I got into uh, a dust-up on the playground with uh, uh, another, another young boy. And soon after, this young boy started telling other people about how terrible I was and how mean I was and how they should all join together against me. And I just, I remember feeling of this bully, if you will. Each day when I would go to school, I'd think about him. 
And I think about what he was doing, and I think about who he was getting on his side, and I think about whether or not I would meet with him, interact with him. It, it for a period of time, consumed my thoughts. Listen, our enemy in heaven is far greater than any playground bully. And I think if you and I are honest, we tend to pay him very little attention. He is far greater, far more nefarious, far more reckoned on our destruction. And we must reckon with him in what we ought do with him. Mark tells us that this man comes out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. And then he pauses the action of the story to spell out for us the depth of this man's condition. Hear Mark's description in verse 3. This man lived among the tombs, these graves, these caves in the side of the cliffs. He lived there. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Mark tells us this man had been living out in these tombs amongst the dead. He was no longer welcomed amongst other humanity. And in some ways, living in the tombs was fitting because he belonged more with the dead than he did with the living. He was so out of control that he had been hunted down by the people in the town surrounding the area. And multiple times we're told they had tried to bind him with chains and shackles and he had wrenched them apart. He was crying out day in and day out. He lived a life full of pain and torment, cutting himself with stones, causing himself harm, probably trying to end his own life. It's a ghastly, ghastly scene. Mark isn't just trying to give us information about the man. He's trying to paint us a picture. You know, I I remember distinctly where I was on April 15th of 2013, and you probably don't. April 15th of 2013, I was out in the offices of uh, the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, This was before ministry for me in my previous career, and I was out there. We were doing some work supporting a number of analysts from the uh, Department of Homeland Security that are assigned out in the field in various cities around the U.S., and we started getting uh, tweets and messages from a number of analysts that there had been an explosion, a few explosions in the midst of the Boston Marathon. And as we were in communication with these men and women who were on the field, who were on the ground at the Boston Marathon, at the scene, they started sending us pictures, pictures that they had taken themselves of where the blasts had taken place. And I remember seeing these pictures. 
I, I remember it because the, the pictures were so vivid of the carnage and chaos that had occurred that I felt like I could taste the smoke. I could hear the, the screams in the pictures. This man was experienced day in and day out a horror that you and I could only, by God's grace, fathom or try to understand. We'll learn eventually that this man was possessed with hundreds, if not thousands, of demons. So what is Mark doing? Why does the action gospel, the shortest of all the gospels, where typically Mark describes an individual with only a word or two to describe them, why does Mark stop to describe the chaos and carnage of this man's life? Is it just because he wants to have a note on demonic activity? Yes and no. Because I think Mark's point is bigger than just the carnage of being possessed by a demon. I think Mark is trying to tell us the evil of our enemy and what he desires to do in ruling and reigning over us. What our enemy, who commands demons, who is the personification of darkness, who provides temptation into our life and longs for us to enter into sin, what he desires of us. And I know this because Jesus himself gives words to the contrast that Mark is describing. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, The thief, the enemy, has come only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the source of life. He's the light of men. He came from heaven to earth that through his death he would give us life and life to the full. His words, his works lead us into a redeemed life a redeemed humanity, free of sin, free of brokenness, free of bondage and hurt and harm. But our enemy is not intent on giving us life. He is intent on taking life from us. And he does this through demonic possession. And he also does this through spiritual warfare and temptation and leading us in to sin. I don't know if you guys saw the Grammys a week ago on Sunday night, and I'm not much of a cultural apologist. I, I didn't watch it, but I saw uh, various accounts of it. Here on national primetime cable television is an entire song called Unholy, where everyone is dressed up glorifying not our creator, but the enemy of our souls. Another song depicted Jay-Z at the Last Supper, where he declared himself to be the true Savior. Our culture is getting increasingly bold in admitting that their allegiance is not to the King of kings and Lord of lords, but actually is falling underneath of the enemy 
of our king and the enemy of our souls. Now listen, you may say, listen, I'm not possessed by a demon, at least that I know of. But I need you to hear this this morning. You give yourself, I give myself over to our enemy every time we give ourselves over to sin. Every time we find comfort apart from the Lord, we are running not towards the Lord, but towards the enemy. Every time we find pleasure apart from the Lord and His design, we are running not towards our King, but towards the enemy. Every time we find rest apart from the Lord and His design, every time we find value apart from the Lord and His design, significance apart from the Lord and His design, We are running into the hands of our enemy. All of this is giving ourselves over to his lies and invitations. Unless you don't think I'm talking about you, I'm talking about everything from pornography and adultery to workaholism. I'm talking about gossip and buying into our culture's standards of beauty and success, lying, anger, lust, greed, and pride, each step towards those things is a step towards our enemy where he invites us deeper and deeper and deeper. It all leads down the road that the enemy wants us to walk towards, which is towards destruction. Listen how Scripture describes the impacts of sin of the way of our enemy. And it sounds a lot like how Mark describes this man. Scripture says that sin leads to death. It leads to corruption. It leads to separation and isolation. It leads to the death of our soul. It leads to destruction. It leads to judgment. It leads to chaos. It leads to torment, darkness, and isolation. And sin isn't passively waiting for us. Scripture tells us that sin is like a lion crouching at our doors, longing to have us. Some of you may say, Michael, listen, I I don't have any big, deep, dark sins. My sins are small. Or maybe you do have some hidden sins, but you lie to yourself and you say, but they're not leading to destruction. They're not really harming me or anyone else around me. Well, C.S. Lewis, again, has something to say about that. In a book written from the point of view of a demonic tempter, he writes this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The enemy is clever, and he desires to have us. And as Christ followers, we must stare in the face the evil of our enemy and be appalled at it. To flee from sin, knowing that it leads not to a life of rest, comfort and hope the way that Jesus offers us, but leads to what this man has experienced, isolation, a loss of self and identity, pain, harm and hurt, and eventually death. 
I was sharing with Pastor Robert a couple days ago. Uh, a few weeks back, I, I had I was on social media and was uh, looking at a couple different articles and started thinking about kind of uh, the way that I looked and getting older and feeling kind of weak and tired and wanting to feel strong and fit. And I started to go down this road of all the things I wanted to be in my mind. And before long, I started to notice that all of this insecurity, insecurity about my relationship with other people and what they really thought of me and my wife and and her faithfulness to me and all of these things started to creep in. And it was because I had just for a moment opened the door to our enemy. I had, I had shunned the identity that the Lord God had given to me and thought, I can build a better one for myself. And in that moment, all of his lies began to flood in. He is relentless and we must see the horror of his pursuits. This is our enemy. And yet, while we must reckon with him, we also are about to learn we need not fear him. Mark goes on. He says, And when he, the man afflicted with this demon, he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. Uh, The life of this man must have been excruciating. I would imagine at this point in time, devoid of any and all hope. Until Jesus shows up. Now, I want you to pause and and think through that statement because this is the statement that brings us eternal hope. Until Jesus showed up. Read Scripture, read all of the Gospels. Ask the question, what changes for any man, woman, and child that finds hope or life or healing? And the answer is Jesus showed up. This is why we gather together on Sundays. Because we expect to encounter the risen Christ, the living God, as we gather together. This is why we gather as gospel communities, because we expect Jesus to show up. This is why we pray and we give ourselves over to the word of God. Because things change when Jesus shows up. This man comes and he falls down before Jesus. And the demon, crying out with a loud voice, says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And the demon, he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. A great herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and they begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And he gave them permission. And the spirits came out entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, and they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Look at how different the demons relate to the possessed man versus Jesus. They've mastered this possessed man. They've enslaved him. He does as they bid They rule over him regardless of what he wants. 
But when they come face to face with Jesus, they kneel. They kneel. They beg again and again. Mark uh, says it multiple times. They say, what do you have to do with me? And they beg him, Jesus, not to send them out of the country. There's a herd of pigs. And they beg him, let us go into them. Do you see the contrast between the power of humanity and the power of Jesus? They call Jesus Son of the Most High God. They know exactly who Jesus is. They understand him better even than the disciples do. And they bow before him. For some reason, they don't want to leave this area and knowing Jesus, that it's not yet his time to completely vanquish them. He allows them to leave the man and enter into a herd of pigs. You see what happens? Last week, Jesus faces a raging tempest of a storm. And with a few short words, masters it. And likewise here today, He comes face to face with a legions of demons. And there's no struggle for power. There's no confusion over who is truly master or king. Jesus speaks and his will is obeyed. This is the true king. And the true king is the king of the world. There is real evil in our world. We have a real enemy who desires to master us, and yet we need not have fear because Jesus himself says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so here is the contrast for us. What kind of king is our king? What kind of king is Jesus? Well, Satan, our enemy, the one who desires to be king, deceives and destroys and enslaves and loses. And Jesus loves and heals and redeems and is victorious. This is the type of king he is. So then the next question becomes, how do we respond? Watch how the people around Jesus respond. It says this, starting in verse 14, the herdsmen fled and they told it to the city and the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and he was in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it they described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg Jesus they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region the herdsmen see what happens they run back and they, they tell the townspeople all that had occurred And the townspeople come out to see this 
man who was once a terror to their community and region, and he's now seated in his right mind before Jesus. He's been redeemed. He's been restored. Quite honestly, he's been resurrected. No longer does he belong to the land of the dead, but to the land of the truly living, seated before Jesus at rest, calm, captivated with his Redeemer. The witnesses see all this and how do they react? Well, Mark tells us they are afraid. It's the same word that Mark used for the disciples when they saw Jesus tell the wind and the waves to be silent, and they were. And at this great display of power, the disciples were afraid. And here again, when the people see the power of Jesus, they are afraid. Now listen, as good church people, we know what the right reaction is. You shouldn't be afraid of Jesus. You should love Jesus. But I think that this is an honest and authentic and typical reaction for us as humans. Back before ministry, uh, when I was working in Homeland Security, I worked with uh, a guy named Fred. Fred was French. He was 6'7", and his last name was Petit. I don't know if that was just a joke his parents had or a joke that the Lord had for him. Uh, Fred had moved over to the States just a few years before, first from France, uh, then he was in Montreal, and he, he moved down to the Chicago area, and his English was okay. Uh, but there were certain words and certain nuances of the English language that he always got confused. And so one uh, weekend, he told me that he was going to go out to uh, Lake Michigan to the beach and spend some time there in downtown Chicago and on the beach and and a uh, little vacation. And so I saw him on Monday and I said, Fred, Fred, how was the beach, man? What, what did you think? And he said, oh, it was awful. I said, what? And he said, it was so awful. I loved it. I, I said, Fred, I, I, don't, I don't think you know what you're saying. And he said, no, 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 it was awful. I said, do you, do you mean awesome? And he said, no, 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 no. Not some awe. It was full of awe. (laughs) And I thought to myself in this moment, how appropriate that some awe is a wonderful thing to us. But too much awe, full power and authority is terrifying to us. We like Jesus as a healer. We like Jesus as a friend. We like Jesus as a savior when we are in trouble, but Jesus as king of the universe, the one who does whatever he pleases and does not consult with us, is terrifying. And so the people beg like the demons, but this time they beg Jesus to leave. And he does. They beg Jesus to leave, and he does. How could their response be so different 
than the man who had been indwelled with a legion of demons. Because he had been healed by Jesus. He had been taken from death to life. He had tasted the goodness of Jesus. And now after tasting who Jesus truly was, he was captivated by him. His life belonged to Jesus. As Paul says, it was no longer he who lived, but Christ who lived through him. And the others were just interested in Jesus. Sure, they would enjoy the power of Jesus used on their behalf. But they hadn't been personally rescued, personally freed, personally transformed by Jesus. And they were not ready for Jesus to control their lives without any say from them. One of them had happily found the Lord of their life. And the others were resolute in ensuring that they would continue to be Lord over their own life. Listen, Jesus will be king. He must be king because he is king. And if you aren't prepared to worship him, to give everything to him, to trust him fully, eventually you will ask him to leave. There is no dabbling with Jesus. There is no liking Jesus without him being Lord and King. There's no dipping a toe into the pool. And this doesn't mean that as he draws you in, there won't be moments where you gradually learn to love and submit to him. But he is king and he can be nothing else. And there is nothing better for you than for him to be king. Because there is no one better, no one kinder, no one else like him will lead and love and carry and sacrifice for you the way that he has and he will. They ask Jesus to leave, and as Jesus leaves, the demoniac, the former demoniac, begs Jesus to go with him. This is what worship looks like. But Jesus says no. He will be with Jesus again one day. But at this time, Jesus tells him that he has a mission to go home, he says in verse 19, to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. This is the response, the rightful response that we have when we come face to face with the king, when the king saves us, when he ends the battle for us, when he redeems us and gives us new life, this is the response to worship him with a love that would see us never separated from him and yet also to understand that Jesus has given us a mission to go out and not to argue the merits of Jesus, not to rationalize with people about the truth of Jesus. Those are good things. But the primary mission of the Christian life is this. Go and tell people what he's done for you. 
how He has given you hope. How He has given you life. How He has restored and healed what was broken. And that's what the man does. There's this beautiful passage in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus later on in his ministry comes back through the Decapolis. And you know what we're told? People after people after people who had heard of the miraculous works of Jesus come to him to be healed. This is what it means to be burdened with hope. To experience the salvation and the healing of Jesus and to be overwhelmed with it. That we can't help to tell everyone else who needs hope to come and see him. Listen, the the book of Judges in the Old Testament ends this way. It says, in those days there was no king. And every man did that which was right in his own Eyes. It is a description of our world today. And it's not a culture of life. It's not a culture of flourishing. It's a culture of darkness and devastation and strife and hunger and confusion and chaos. People aren't flourishing, they're floundering. They may look good on the surface. But like a swan or a duck that is swimming underneath, it is churning and churning. They are exhausted because they can never get to that which the world promises them. They can't find true hope. They can't find true contentment. They can't find final healing. And they never experience true abundant life. And it's because they've pretended and striven to be King. But we don't have to pretend to be king because there is a good king, Jesus, who really is ruling and who really does offer us all those things. Listen, hear this, church. Jesus is king, he is not a tame king. A king that we control. He is Lord of the universe, maker of heaven and earth. Our king is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He is not a tame king. But he is a good king. So come. Fall at his feet. Lay your life down and worship him. And then let us go and tell the world around us who also desperately needs him. Let's pray.